Happy September, friends and neighbors, and thank you for dancing a jig as you devour Scoring at the Movies episode number 59. We peel back layers on sports pictures, and we always do lots of spoiling. I'm the bastard and then some who knows you can't kill a guy by smashing his nose cartilage up into his brain, Ryan Ellis. And here's the Italian stallion, yes, Italian stallion, who's been saying ain't life a bitch as long as I've known him, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. You know I was really excited to talk about this movie today. I emailed you about that, but I got some really depressing news before we started recording tonight. Got contacted by the podcast commissioner, and I was told that I've been banned from the game, Ryan, for gambling on the outcome of the sports movies that we've been covering the last 57-odd episodes now, and for suspected alcohol abuse. And that one cuts deeper than the gambling thing, because... (laughs) It's all just a business, man. You and I, we go out there every two weeks and we put our minds and our emotions on the line. Sometimes maybe I turn to a beer here or there to numb the pain, but I'm the one out there doing it, not them. And, you know, I I drink a beer or two and I feel better. But then the emotional trauma of just covering some of these shitty movies that we talk about from time to time, it's too much. So I got (laughs) to up the game a little bit, maybe a shot of whiskey or something. And is that enough for them to make me a villain and cast me out? I don't think so. It's all just a corporate game of bullshit. When you're done feeling sorry for yourself, you can see yourself out. (laughs) (laughs) But sign my daughter's card on the way out. What are you drinking? That was a nice segue because you did open your beer during that. What are you drinking? This is a Greenfields Sour IPA. And it's disappearing because you are on a green screen with a Boy Scout pitcher. Nicely done. Not last Boy Scout, but an actual Boy Scout. And yes, your beer mostly disappears. Just a white label. I do enjoy an adult beverage while we record, as do you, I know, most of the time, but I'm not actually condoning alcohol abuse as a way to escape any sort of emotional or physical stress that you're undergoing. That was sure just... you are. <laughs> Ixnay on the promotion. <laughs> as far as anyone is aware, I am not promoting it. I am merely riffing on Damon Wayne's character in this movie. It's still a pandemic, man. Whatever gets you through. Yeah. Who can judge you for that? When I said I was excited to talk about this movie, I was not kidding about this. We've covered a lot of great movies, and a lot of shitty movies, too. I'm not a huge notes guy, but for this movie, it is so wild, so crazy, and I have so much that I want to talk about, that I have more notes for this movie alone than for the other 57 movies that we've talked about combined. It's bananas. 58 episodes, but okay. Well, I'm glad I picked this episode, then. It's only because I have the DVD, so it's easy access yet again. We'll have to pay for something at some point, and I will, but not yet. (laughs) You're going to pound it into the ground like a running back trying to pound in the touchdown he needs to get off the schneid with a mob boss? Did he score that touchdown? Did he actually get in the end zone? I didn't think so. I love that moment so much because not only does he pull out a gun and kill two innocent men for no reason. Or three, is it? Two or three. He fails to score and then kills himself. One of a few things has to happen here. You either fail to score and then you realize you're screwed, so you just kill yourself. Or you kill a bunch of guys, get in the end zone, and in a mental break capacity, you say, hey, I scored, I covered the spread. One of those two things has to be true. You don't kill some guys, fail to score, and then kill yourself. That just seems cruel and wasteful. (laughs) If this movie was an actual comedy, they would absolutely have had the referee pull a flag when he shot the first guy. (laughs) This is a comedy. This is like an action comedy. They should have had that in this movie. It would have been amazing. Okay, so more of a Monty Python, naked gun type comedy then. Then you've got to have the flag from the official come out. Unnecessary homicide, five yards on the ball. We can understand you killing somebody, but not with a firearm. Yeah. That moment, the mob boss that's telling him he's got to score a touchdown or else, that mob boss does not know how to fix sporting events. You never bet on the player to score the over. If you're a pitcher, you give up the home run. If you're a batter, you strike out, you fail to drive in a runner. That's how you fix games. You shave points. Right. It's failure, not success. Right. That's what you can control as a player. You can intentionally fail, but you can't force yourself to succeed necessarily. This mob boss is the worst fixer of games I've ever come across. Poor Billy Blank. You know who's on the phone with him at that moment, though, actually, is Taylor Negron, who plays Milo. We don't see him for about an hour. 
but you hear him in the opening scene. He's the one on the phone with Billy Cole, and that is, of course, Billy Blanks, the Tybo guy. He should have Tyboed his way into the end zone. That would have been a great product placement, because I think Billy Blanks was developing Tybo from, like, the 70s. He's been doing it for decades. <laughs> If he just drop kicked the guy and then walked into the end zone and then flexed to show off how jacked he was as a result of his workout regimen, I would have been a big fan of that. And then killed himself. And then killed himself, of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay, before we get back to the last Boy Scout here, let's do a little bit of business. Subscribe to us on our very own channel, Scoring at the Movies, in all the usual podcast places. I'm going to keep on plugging this because it's fairly new. We've only been doing this for a few weeks. Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn. And what are the other ones you just told me a minute ago that we're on now or will be soon? It's everywhere. Google Podcasts, Amazon Music now is a podcast section. It's on Deezer. Overdrive will have it. Podcast Addict has it. We'll remain on the Top Runner Project feed for another month or so, but that's going to end at the beginning of October. We have an episode actually on October 1st. So as of October 1st, we'll only be on our own feed and Podbean. So two more episodes in September here, Last Boy Scout. And next week's, I'll say right now, Bend It Like Beckham. And then we're leaving the Top Runner Project feed. So keep on hearing our takes about sporty flicks that way. I know that you will. In another month or so, we'll be out there in that cold, cruel podcast world all by ourselves. Okay, El Ultimo Boy Scout, which is the title in some Hispanic countries, I guess, was released by Warner Brothers in mid-December 1991. Last Boy Scout wasn't a flop, but it didn't light the box office on fire either. That was also the year of Hudson Hawk, which was a flop, and people shit all over that one, as they probably should. But this movie is one that I like. I think we've already given that away. And I did choose it. You agreed, and it seems like you're really glad that you agreed, right? I will say I enjoyed watching it for very different reasons than I would have enjoyed watching it back in the early to mid-90s, because I would have been 10 years old when this came out. I never saw it in the theater, and I think up until this point, I only ever saw the TV edit. Was it 40 minutes long? Yeah, it was 40 minutes long. Every third word was like a bad dubbed swear or something (laughs) like that, right? I'm going to kick you in the... Nards. (laughs) I'm going to stick an umbrella in your ear and open it kind of stuff, right? (laughs) I know I liked watching it back when I first saw it. Definitely enjoyed it now. This movie is wild. And I don't know who makes these choices. The screenwriter was just becoming famous. Shane Black. Shane Black. Obviously, there's a lot of alpha personalities on it. The producer was, what, Silver? Joel Silver, who was a maverick then. And he's parodied in True Romance. He is the Lee Donowitz character that Saul Rubinek plays in that. And apparently that's extremely accurate, at least according to Tony Scott. Because Tony Scott did True Romance. He did this movie. And he also did a movie we've done before, Days of Thunder. So we've done two sports movies, quote-unquote, by Tony Scott. And we'll probably at some point do The Fan, which was 1996. So maybe we'll wait till next year when it's 25 years old. In the span of six years, he did three sports films. And Tony Scott, I've said it before in other podcasts with Bev, As far as being entertained and enjoying, I prefer him to his brother. Ridley made the more classic movies, Alien and Blade Runner and Dom and Louise, maybe arguably Gladiator. Bev and I have covered all of those on this channel. Well, sorry, the old channel. Eventually it's going to sound like (laughs) the old channel. But I prefer, as far as entertainment goes, Tony Scott. And this is a good example of it. Although this isn't really quite his jam exactly. He was one of many people unhappy on this movie. In fact, I think everybody was unhappy. Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans apparently didn't get along. Joel Silver was pissed off with people. He changed Shane Black's script, and I read that thinking, wait a minute, I always thought this was a pretty good screenplay. Then I watched the movie after reading that fact and think, but this script crackles. This is a snappy screenplay. There are a lot of good quotes in this movie. This is one of the most quotable movies you and I have ever covered. For all the brutality, for all the late 80s, well, early 90s insanity in it, violence, bad language, main character talks awful shit to his wife, deserve it or not. For all that stuff, this is a very good screenplay and from the standpoint of dialogue at the very least. And yet apparently, Joel Silver changed a lot of that on Shane Black. So everybody was pissed off and that they put out a movie that I've always enjoyed. So my top 20 from 1991, for what that's worth. (laughs) You already described a few movies from 1991 that we've covered alone that were, I thought, pretty good and probably better. I shouldn't say better movies, but good movies at the very least. So 91 was not necessarily a bad year for you to say this is a top 20 movie in that year. I think says something, right? Interesting choice to release this in December, though. Like, they were trying to push for a diehard level of reception that this might be embraced as a quasi-Christmas movie. What's Bruce Willis' character? Joe Hellenbuck? Hellenbeck. Hellenbeck. His daughter in this movie draws Satan claws. So there's a very tangential link to Christmas, I guess, in that way. But it was a weird release date for something like this, anyway. They were probably trying to keep it away from Hudson Hawk, which Willis did that same year, and I think Silver produced. That was out in May. 
So they probably didn't want to have two Bruce Willis movies out. Don't forget, back nearly 30 years ago, movies were in theaters for longer than they are now. So if you release a movie in May and you don't want to have it competing with the same star, same producer, same whoever a few months later. But back in 1991, you expect it didn't, but you expect a movie to last a lot longer. So that's probably why they positioned Last Boy Scout. And maybe also Warner Brothers wanted something in December and didn't have anything else, which is also counter-programming to whatever Christmas movies come out. This era of Bruce Willis seems to be he's always the guy that is kind of an ass, pretty unlikable, but you as a viewer are supposed to be like, you're so horrible, but you're so damn cool. I really want to be you. Bruce Willis got huge in that time period, so I'm sure it was a thing. But looking back on it now, I just look at it and I scratch my head a little bit. How? I love Die Hard, and I love Bruce Willis in Die Hard, but what he turned into for a period of time after that, I kind of shake my head a little bit at. I like where Bruce Willis got to also. Ladder Bruce Willis, mumbly, and I don't know if I want to be here, but here I am on the screen kind of Bruce Willis, I think is a lot of fun. His looper and post-looper stuff can be kind of cool. You've seen his post-looper stuff because almost all of it goes straight to video. Yeah, I've watched some of it. It's fun. Now, I'm also the guy that really loves a lot of the terrible Nick Cage movies that he makes just to get out of debt with the IRS. Not saying any of this stuff is good, per se, but I enjoy those Bruce Willis movies in the same way I enjoy those crappy Nick Cage movies. Okay, I'll give us some numbers. There aren't that many on Last Boy Scout. Rotten Tomatoes did not like this movie. 47% of critics, only 4.7. 5.4 out of 10 as an average, and 68% of audiences, so it is a fresh tomato with the odds. It was 21st at the 1991 U.S. box office. Terminator 2, which Bev and I covered years ago on the Top 100 Project, the old channel, was number one. Point Break, which you and I covered, it's on this channel, was number 29. And Necessary Roughness was number 48. We'll probably do that one at some point. And since I'm on my notes here with the nutshell, let's do, in a nutshell, for The Last Boy Scout. Get ready for alliteration. <laughs> Willis and Wayans wisecrack while waging war against amoral asshole and assaulting associates. And gasp. <laughs> waging war is right. There's quite a body count in this movie. Quite a body Bruce count. Willis gets his ass handed to him. He gets hit in the face and punched and assaulted over and over and over. He takes an ass kicking in every movie of this type. We mentioned Die Hard, all of those, of course. So many other films where he takes a beating and dies. He dies more than most movie stars. I remember when he was on Inside the Actor's Studio and James Lipton said, probably about Armageddon or maybe Sixth Sense, you died in that movie. That's unusual for you. And I thought instantly at that moment, are you fucking kidding me? Bruce Willis dies more than almost anybody else in his movies. There's two of them right there, I just said. Mortal Thoughts, he dies in that. I can't think of the rest right now, but he dies a ton in his movies for a big star. Not in the Die Hard movies, obviously. Ironically, Die Hard never dies. dies and in not Looper. in this, but he probably should. Dies in Looper, there you go. So, for such an alpha male, it's interesting that he'd be willing to be a sacrificial lamb. And he seems like such an asshole as well. We've learned that about him through Kevin Smith's thoughts. And not just him. Bev and I have covered Sixth Sense and Pulp Fiction and Sin City. Die Hard as well. Actually, you and I probably haven't covered a sports movie with him in it before. And there may not no. be anything else I can't think of. Right? The Whole Nine Yards is not a sports movie. Of course, it sounds like one, but it's not. But he is a star I've liked. I don't know if I'd ever want to know him personally. But he's such a movie star, he's in fine form in this film. Damon Wayans, who is his supposedly much younger co-star, is only five years younger than Bruce Willis. He's best known for In Living Color, and he's only been on TV, so shows and TV movies and things, since 2016. Which is also true of Chelsea Field, Sarah. She was in Masters of the Universe, that movie in the mid-80s, and a few NCIS episodes over the years. But she's made no movies since 2008. And this is also 1991, so it's probably the, well, she's an old lady now, but she is really great looking in this movie. Chelsea Field, Halle Berry, in one of her very first movies. I believe this was the first year of movies that she was ever in. She was in multiples in this year, but this was the first year of films, 91. But Halle Berry, Chelsea Field, even Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans, I'll answer this question right now. Very scorable film, except for all the brutal <laughs> violence and language. And the little kid being put in danger, but good looking people. Good looking people, for sure. This is such a time capsule of late 80s, early 90s, machismo, buddy cop, action movie. And they chose to make Halle Berry's character an exotic dancer. As far as I can determine, strictly so that you can have a scene in a strip club where you get some brief partial nudity. That's it, right? Because the only reason Halle Berry's character exists in this movie is to be a rationale for Damon Wayans to go on a vengeance hunt and because she nominally has some sort of blackmail material on the senator, which she got from dating him, 
at no point is it stated that she dates him because he met her in a strip club or anything. It's just Halle Berry's a beautiful woman and she somehow met this guy and they've been dating, even though she's also dating Damon Wayans. She's not fucking Marconi. That's very clearly stated by Wayans. Uh, hang on. You said Marconi. Bev and I just covered Godfather Part 3 not long ago where it's Corleone, Corleone, Corleone. All of these pronunciations of the last name. In this film, I heard it pronounced Marcone, which is, I believe, how Noble Willingham says his own name. So that must be the proper pronunciation. But at one point, Bruce Willis says Marcon, and you just said Marconi. I've been playing a lot of Arkham Knight, a Batman video game, where I think there's a Marconi villain, so I might get those mixed up. That was one thing that stood out to me, because Halle Berry's barely in this movie, and she herself does not have a nude scene in this movie. The rationale for her to be a quasi-stripper server and a strip joint, whatever it is, exotic dancer, I'm not really sure. She's a dancer. She's on the stage when Damon Wayans yanks her off because he wants her to leave because he's pissed off at Bruce Willis being the private eye. You don't need him. I could take care of you. But she is in the middle of dancing when he yanks her off the stage and takes her away. After Bruce Willis has alpha-mailed Damon Wayans into submission... I don't know if this was Shane and Shane Black's script or this is an example of Joel Silver or the studio saying, all right, guys, we got to get some tits in this movie, so how are we going to do that? Halle Berry's going to be an exotic dancer. We'll have somebody in the background just showing off her breasts, and then boom. Just like you have the scene where Damon Wayans, the first time we see Damon Wayans in this movie, in fact, he gets out of bed having slept with somebody else cheating on Halle Berry because he's apparently the biggest idiot in the world. <laughs> And he walks by the pool where there's a bunch of naked football players in the pools and hot tubs. And one guy in particular who's in the hot tub with another woman who he is casually sexually assaulting, trying to drown, saying she ain't coming up to starts blowing. And I'm like, oh, man, casual sexual violence in here. All right. But it's okay because Damon Wayans is a good guy and decides to save her by throwing the worst spiral at this guy I've ever seen in my life. I had to rewatch it like four times because Damon Wayans in this movie is, of course, a disgraced quarterback and he's called the kid with the golden arm or something. But when he picks up the football and throws it at this beefy linebacker guy that's in the hot tub who's abusing the woman, there's zero spiral to that ball. If I were to pick it up and shot putt lob it at the guy, that's how the ball was thrown. I'm like, come on, guys. You couldn't even get a shot of a proper spiral by the Michael Vick equivalent of 1991. It hits him in the forehead as well. That's Tony Longo, who is a football player. Hits him in the forehead pretty clearly. But then after that, they cut away and his nose is bloody somehow. (laughs) It's so good. I love it. So the way that football is interlaced in this movie, there's not a lot of it, but it is interesting. Immediately... You jump into the movie and you're thrown into this football game where Billy Blanks at halftime is threatened by Taylor Negron's character, who, by the way, I always love. I can't get enough Taylor Negron. He's a good villain in this movie. For He's such good. a meanie. Yeah. Bruce Willis would have his ass if he had a real fist fight with him. And of course, at the end, he does have his ass. But if they just were squaring off in a legit fight, Willis would destroy him. But Taylor Negron makes for a damn good villain. Like that whole thing where it's just once I want to hear you scream in pain. I think you're so cool. And that scream and pain line, of course, is paid off with play some rap music. One of the many quotable lines. <laughs> That's Taylor a great Negron line. is a damn good villain. Just like Noble Willingham, who usually played pretty nice guys. This same year as this, he's in City Slickers in a relatively small role. He's the guy that owns the ranch where they're shuggling the cattle back and forth. And then I loved him in Good Morning Vietnam. Again, a nice guy. But he's a really damn good villain. And, of course, so is Taylor Negron as Milo, who was also in Angels Nailfield for us, one of the first movies we ever covered. He is the guy that has to shuttle the kids around and get them food and stuff. Definitely a weenie character in that movie. This is maybe a weird comparison, but he kind of reminds me of Javier Bardem. This is not necessarily a terribly imposing man, but there's something about when Bardem starts speaking and the way he carries himself and the way he delivers some of his lines, all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I'm intimidated. When Negron wants to come off as creepy and sadistic and cruel, you look at him, you're like, oh, this guy's just like a weenie. And he's got like a weird, goofy haircut in this movie, although it was 1991, so maybe it was a cool haircut in 91. But then he starts saying some of the things he says in this movie, and you go, oh, there's something off with you. You mentioned the play rap music line by Bruce Willis. That was a great line. I really enjoyed the Taylor Negron delivery to the police officer when the officer steps up to the car that Negron's in, and he says, is there anything wrong here? He says, yes, officer. This gun appears to have too many bullets in it, and then just shoots him. I don't know if that line in 1991 was meant to be played for serious, cool value, but I loved it as a goofy villain line. That was amazing. It's a very cool way to kill somebody. I don't <laughs> want to see awesome. somebody get killed, of course. But in a movie like this, people are going to get killed. 
That cop has also been a pretty sympathetic cop. He's the underling to the guy who hates Bruce Willis's character of the two cops. He's going to do his job, and I didn't remember this being him. I haven't seen this movie in many years, but I always remember that line. I didn't remember it being this movie until I did my research and thought, oh, that's right, That's the. there's too many bullets in this gun. I fully agree with you on that, that it's a shitty thing that he does to a cop we've grown to like, and they're trying to frame Joe Hallenbeck for the murder. But if you're going to do that, then that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, do it cool, and he definitely did it cool. And by the way, before we get off of Taylor Negron, I'm sure we'll talk about him again, but I just looked him up when you were talking. He's actually six foot two. I'm sorry, he's dead, actually, so unfortunately he? he died of cancer. But he was six foot two. Bruce Willis is six feet, so I said that Bruce Willis would have his ass, but maybe not. He's taller than Bruce Willis. I know Bruce Willis was not a big guy. He's certainly not Schwarzenegger. He seems bigger than he actually is. Six feet is... A pretty average height, I guess, for most people. You're taller than him, but he's taller than me. But Bruce Willis has that look, I guess, from the Die Hard movies especially, I think. You know what? I bet he could take out, maybe not Schwarzenegger hand-to-hand if they, and they never did a movie together where they fought. But him and Stallone, if they'd ever had a movie together where they actually fought, I could see Willis looking legit like he could beat up Stallone, who was always more physically imposing from the standpoint of muscles. Well, the reason why Die Hard worked is because Bruce Willis looked like a regular dude. But at the same point, yeah, he could hurt you. It comes back to carriage, right? Like how you carry yourself. And Bruce Willis has that way of carrying himself in this movies and the other action movies. Maybe it's confidence. Maybe it was asshole machismo of the era or whatever. But it's just like, yeah, I could kick your ass. And Negron might be 6'2", but he's kind of a slender, lithe 6'2". He carries himself in this less aggressive way, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. He's also so proper with formal names. Joseph and yes, James. That's, too. that's a good point. The thing that brought me into this movie immediately after that scene with Billy Branks talking to Taylor Negron's character was it Friday Night Football theme, which is, I guess, is the takeoff. Friday of, Night's a great night for football. Which I assume is the takeoff of the Monday Night Football theme. Yeah. This is not the NFL. No. At one point in the scene you just talked about in the hot tub where he throws the football at Tony Longo, Damon Wayans says, the best arm in the National League. But if this is supposed to be the NFL for real, well, it's the L.A. Stallions. I forget what the Cleveland team was, but it wasn't the Cleveland Browns. So it isn't the NFL, actually. The Cleveland Cats. Yeah, okay, right. So this is not the NFL exactly, and yet National League reference. This is clearly a big-time sports league. I think I said leading up to this two weeks ago that this has got a lot of football in it, but it doesn't really. There's the opening sequence we talked about, which doesn't last very long. And then the last game, which we don't really see much of the actual action. But I'm going to skip to the middle of the movie for a minute here because, and you already did a parody on it, so I'll just talk about it a little bit for a second. I always thought that was such an accurate speech, especially the last five or ten years. My knees are shot, I can barely get through, so I'm taking legal drugs, but it's not enough. We talked about this on any given Sunday, too. Got up the dosage. Then I'm taking illegal drugs just to get by through the day. So you fucking people, and we find out later, actually only a few minutes later in that same scene, that Joe Hallenbeck was one of the people that loved this guy. And then when he turned out to be a bad dude because he dared to gamble, which thousands of people do every single day, and yes, that does taint the game. Absolutely. We talked about it in 8 Man Out, that if you bet on your own team to win or lose, that taints the game more than steroids, at least I think, ever will. I'm not cool with that. Pete Rose, not really a fan of the whole thing, especially when we found out we actually did bet on the Reds when he was a manager and a player. But his whole speech, I was so sympathetic to it because he's not wrong. And then the whole thing about... When you're done feeling sorry for yourself, see yourself out or get the fuck out of my house or whatever the line is. I can understand why this guy, who is the last Boy Scout, who was a Secret Service guy, who was so clean cut. And even though he's a loser now and looks so ratty and everything and has a bad relationship with his wife and his kid, he still has such morals. And he's saying, Jimmy, your morals suck. Well, we've talked about this in a lot of our podcasts, that it's such a murky situation. And then Shelly Marcone later on about the players are just, gimme, 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 gimme. Mm-hmm. There's so much money. Why shouldn't the person who's putting their body on the line and the reason why we're watching get paid as well as they reasonably can? So that whole speech is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this movie. And I hadn't really thought about it that deeply until I watched it for this viewing and thought, it's complicated, but I do think it's a very powerful part of the movie. And that's one reason why this is a sports movie, because that's always underlying everything or maybe overlying everything. Here's a former fan of this exact guy we find out midway through the movie is the main character, Bruce Willis. And then the other leading character is a former football player who's still got a lot of talent. When he gets shot in the hand, 10 minutes later, he throws a football what must be hundreds of feet, or if not hundreds of yards, perfectly accurately to save Senator Boehner from getting shot. Anyway, when he rationalizes why, and also he told Bruce Willis the story out in the living room earlier, another well-played scene between the two of them, talking about how his wife was run over by a truck, pregnant at the time, lost his wife and unborn baby in a matter of seconds while he's playing football and having the game of his life. I thought that was so 
relatable. Although I can't relate to those things, but I thought that was so human. Okay, before we get into the drug stuff, because there's more to unpack there, one of the things that at a certain point I found almost amusing about this movie was the fact that there were no normal people that we really get to know in this movie. Everybody is just severely broken or traumatized somehow. It felt like every character was just waiting for their moment to monologue. Bruce Willis goes on about how shitty he is and how much he hates himself. Everybody hates you. Yeah, and then Damon Wayne's like, and now my turn walks towards the camera and leans meaningfully in and talks about how his wife was eight months pregnant and got run over by a van while he was playing football. And I'm thinking, why does Damon Wayne's character have to have an ex-wife who got hit and run murdered while eight months pregnant while he was playing football? You didn't like that. Well, it felt like, why does that need to be a thing? On top of the drug usage, on top of the expelled from the sport while he's on top for gambling... On top of Halle Berry, his current girlfriend, getting murdered in but front of him. But that's why those things are happening to him. Because he had a Bible-thumper, if you will, kind of life. He even talks about God at one point. Why are you shitting on me, big guy? He had the perfect life. He was doing everything right. His body was probably starting to break down anyway. He was going to start having to do the drugs, I'm sure, to get through every day anyway. But then he turned to the quote-unquote dark side because his life got fucked up by just a chance thing. It wasn't even anybody doing anything wrong. It was just a pickup truck jump the curb. Yeah. I think that was very logical. I don't see any connection with the wife thing. I see the connection with injury and drug use. Fine. I see an argument to be made for I'm the best there is in the game right now and I'm not getting paid to the degree that I'm worth. This is filmed, let's say, 89, 90, probably for release in 91. NFL players only got collective bargaining rights in the 80s. Their salaries were only starting to increase to the point that we see them today. At that time period, in 1990, I think Warren Moon was the highest paid player at like a million and a half or something. So I could get behind him saying I'm not getting paid as much as I'm worth, while at the same time I understand why Shane Black would write in a character that wags their fingers on behalf of owners and public perception of greedy players, because player bargaining is a relatively new phenomenon in the NFL at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So I could see public perception being, ah, oh, these greedy players all want multi-million dollars. And I think we're on the same page as far as, listen, these guys get the snot kicked out of them, pay them what they're worth because they may only be in the game for two years and suffer the rest of their lives thereafter. And they're the business. They're why you have a business. Absolutely. But those two things and this depressing backstory are disconnected from one another. If his wife and baby survived, he still blows out his knees and gets addicted to drugs. And maybe he still gambles because he feels like he's underpaid. We've already come to know Bruce Willis's inner dark demons. His wife is cheating on him with his best friend. His daughter, for some reason, hates his guts and thinks he's a loser for reasons that we're not really clear on. Well, he is a loser. But is he? He's a Secret Service agent that saves who I assume is meant to be Jimmy Carter 10 years ago. And now he's a P.I. because he punches out a senator who had strung up and was beating the heck out of a prostitute or a girlfriend or whatever. Sexually assaulting somebody, whoever that girl was, yeah. So he goes and he punches the senator's lights out, who, of course, because it's a movie, that's the same senator that he's going to foil at the end of this movie. But A, I'm pretty sure that if you're enough of a celebrity, even in the late 70s, I guess, when he saved the president's life, you take a bullet for a president, you're a bit of a celebrity at that point. Even if you punch a senator, do you really think you're going to get fired from the Secret Service? I doubt it, because that causes a scandal. Hero Secret Service agent fired? That story is going to come out. Why does he say he punched a senator? Because he was beating the snot out of a woman in his hotel room. If they smear him, I could see that working. And know why? Just last night at work, I watched a show that we air on the CBC. I've never even heard of it before. It's called Good People. And one of the episodes I watched was about a guy who was some kind of hero in Afghanistan. We don't do the Presidential Medal of Honor or the Congressional Medal of Honor, I guess they call that, or the Valor, the Purple Heart, that kind of stuff in Canada, I don't think. But whatever our equivalent is, he got that. But the whole point is this guy is now a drug addict who at one point was homeless and lost his family. He wasn't seeing his daughter anymore. And he recovered. That's why he's in the episode at all. Joe Hallenbeck could have been smeared with those kinds of allegations and the same thing could have happened to him. And then he is somebody who literally calls himself, okay, you are a lowlife when he goes to pick up that cigarette that's on the ground that somebody else had smoked. So in his own mind, he's a lowlife and a loser. It wouldn't be that hard at all for him to get painted as, well, he was a hero before, but now he's not. Because don't forget, maybe that's also a subtext in what is a sort of sports movie. And we are jamming into the sports movie category, as we did Point Break and Fast and Furious earlier this year. That they put you up on this pedestal just so they can tear you right down again. One of these days, Mike Trout is going to be dog shit. And all these same people that jerk off to the guy every day 
the greatest player ever by stats. He will be one day, and he's right there with them now. Mike Trout's going to have something happen to him, or he's going to do something wrong, and those same people are going to piss on his fucking head. Not only is Jimmy a fallen star, but so is Joe, and over something that he didn't even do that was wrong. He did the right thing, almost more right to have saved a girl who's being beat on by this asshole. Although his job is to save the president. But in both cases, he was truly a hero, did the right thing. But at the second instance, his whole career is over. He's smeared. But maybe that's the subtext here with a sports movie where athletes get smeared, sometimes justifiably, but other times not justifiably. Maybe. If that's the subtext, that's fine. But I find it difficult to believe that he's out on the street immediately. But let's say that he is. So he gets fired and becomes a PI. It took time for him to become a loser. This didn't happen in a year or two. Exactly, because this movie takes place at 89-90. It was actually, by the way, filmed in the early part of 91. I looked it up. March to June of 91. We get him punching out the senator, and then that's the end of his backstory, as far as we know. We just know him now. And we know that his wife hates his guts for some reason. He's always away because he's working, and yet he's a fuck-up loser. If you're his wife, and you've been his wife for at least 13 years, because his daughter's 13, or even if you weren't married then, you've been together for 13 years... You've known him as a Secret Service agent. You knew him when he got fired. Presumably you know why he got fired. And you know how hard he's working now because he's always away from home. And yet she still views him as a fuck-up, slags him to their daughter, sleeps with the best friend. I'm lonely. You're always away from home. I was seeking companionship. You're a self-hating individual, so you're emotionally unavailable. I need something. That part I get. Maybe Sarah's just a shitty person. She's going to cheat again. And now you're getting to it. With Damon Wayne's character, with the wife's character, Sarah, with Joe Halabeck, Bruce Willis's character, with the daughter who's using the puppet to talk like she has some sort of undiscussed mental challenge that we don't know about. She's struggling emotionally because her parents are always fighting and she knows her mom's cheating so she can only communicate through the puppet. We don't know. It's never really addressed. She just does oh, it. Oh, you know what I just realized? You mentioned the puppet. Interestingly, when we first meet Bruce Willis's character, it's the morning. He slept in his car. Die Hard with a Vengeance-esque, where he's this hungover loser that has to go through a hell of a day. Well, many days in The Last Boy Scout, one day in Die Hard 3. But he talks to Mike, who offers him the job to protect Halle Berry. Mike, at that point, is in his house, probably just having banged Sarah. Yes. Why is Mike so casual about leaving the house when he knows that Joe's in town? He thought, as did Sarah, that Joe was still in Vegas. Okay, fine, but now we know he's not. So get out of his house! Another great line, and I've used this before. It's a personal family situation, and it got a great laugh at my family's Thanksgiving many years ago. But I didn't know it was from this movie. Again, I forgot it was from Last Boy Scout, where he says to Mike that same morning, so you slipped on the floor and accidentally stuck your dick in my wife? I like the notion of, you're my best friend, nobody's perfect. All right, you want hit or get? You got to take a punch, man. All right, now we're kind of cool. But these people that have all experienced trauma or all messed up somehow, I don't think it's a needful part of their characters. I think it's Shane Black or the studios or the director, whoever, just saying, this is the gritty 90s, man. Everyone's fucked up. The world is a deep, dark place. They were shooting this movie right after... There was a war between Iraq and America. They didn't declare war because they never declare a war. Maybe that's part of the subtext, too. That was the mindset when they started making this movie in the spring of 91. I guess. The only guy in this movie that is normal, and we don't even learn a lot about him, is the cop that you mentioned earlier. The two cops, I guess, yeah. The chief is kind of a dick. He's just got it out for Joe for reasons that we don't really know. Everybody in this movie hates Joe. I wanted to know more about what this guy has done post getting kicked out of the Secret Service because everybody that knows him thinks he's an ass, up to and including Damon Wayans' character until the very end. Is he just the world's biggest dick? I think that's it. It's almost like they fast-forwarded about 20 years to the Kevin Smith working with them times and people realized, and maybe Kevin Smith is full of shit. I don't think so. Kevin Smith seems like an honest guy and he has raked Bruce Willis over the coals. Bruce Willis got fired from working with Stallone and everybody in the Expendables films. He doesn't make hits anymore. He doesn't even get to work with studios anymore. I think it's him. So maybe he was thought of that way even then. And Hudson Hawk, we've mentioned a few times, was a bad movie, apparently. I don't remember it. I know it wasn't very good. But it also apparently was a bad experience. So maybe Bruce Willis was just playing Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis's character, this best friend who's apparently also like his booking agent or I guess a fellow PI, offers him a job to protect Halle Berry because Halle Berry's character is in danger because she has blackmail material on this mob boss and or senator and their business dealings as it relates to the legalization of gambling in California. It's Marcone that wants to do that, legalize gambling, and then of course the mob is pissed off. That's a nice twist too. So let me guess, that tape goes to the cops? No, actually to the mob. The senator, when it comes to the business 
He was shitty when it comes to girls. Obviously, that's terrible. He should have gone to jail for that. It's Marcone who wants to bribe him. And then it's, of course, well, I'll just kill him then with this C4. Do you remember why they say he wouldn't take a bribe? It was not enough. It wasn't enough. He wants more. He wants six million. Anyway, Halle Berry's got this blackmail material, so Bruce Willis meets her, and that's when we meet Jimmy Dix. But when Jimmy and Halle Berry leave the strip club where Halle Berry's working, they leave in separate cars. Halle Berry gets rear-ended by some guys, and she pulls over. Incidentally, worst pullover I've ever seen. She's still blocking, like, an entire lane of traffic. After she gets out of her car to say, hey, guys, what's wrong with you? Can't you drive? They don't grab her and kidnap her. They blow her away. Automatic weapons, AK-47 style, just annihilate her. Which Jimmy takes somewhat badly. Yeah. (laughs) He never really grieves for his girlfriend. He kind of says, no, in an action star way and runs toward it. These three or four henchmen cannot land a shot on Damon Wayans as he runs towards them and also cannot land a shot on Bruce Willis as he runs toward them with his handgun. Bruce Willis blows away everybody. Damon Wayans runs over one of them. But I love the thought that these guys make no effort to question her, make no effort to ask her where the photos are, and you're dead now. And then, of course, Damon Wayans finds the photos in his drug stash at Halle Berry's apartment later. Okay, so you mentioned the C4, the plastic explosives. So later on, Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis driving down the street, they get pulled over by also like a mob henchman type guy. All right, where's the evidence or whatever, right? This is after Bruce Willis had found out that Damon Wayans' car was probably wired with C4 because his partner's car was also wired with C4. So he makes this connection. (gasps) She had two cars! So he pulls the C4 out of the car, shoves it against his trunk, closes the trunk, throws away his car keys, tells the bad guys that, oh, the evidence is in the trunk, go fuck yourself, I threw the car keys in the ravine, you ain't never gonna get it. I guess because he assumes, rather than get pissed off and shoot him... They will instead shoot the lock out of the trunk, which is exactly what happens. And the C4 explodes, which is also not how plastic explosives work. It's the very reason why they're plastic explosives. It's because it's a stabilizing agent. You have to blow them up with, like, a smaller explosive. I don't think it's the same scene, but there's three white heavies that approach Damon Wayans at one point. His quippable, smart-ass remark is, I'm trying to decide which of you guys looks more like my dick. But Damon Wayans is a black man... And there's three very white guys walking up to him. If you're trying to decide which of those three guys looks more like your dick, is that an implication that there's like a pigmentation issue going on down in the crotchal region? <laughs> the carpet doesn't match the drapes, so to speak. He's Michael Jacksoning his body. We just don't see it. <laughs> He's doing it from the groin out. Is that also the scene where they throw him off an overpass? He lands in the car. Yeah. And then he does get up, talks a bit to the passersby. Then passes out, but he should have died, or at least been badly hurt. He fell like four stories or something. That was a long fall. One story would be enough. Did you see they threw me off the bridge? I'm good, guys. I'm a professional. Don't worry. Hey! Just thought of it. This movie was released by Warner Brothers. That's supposed to be some kind of Bugs Bunny, or more likely Daffy Duck type thing, I bet. Oh, you could practically see the little Tweety Bird circling his head. Maybe while that's he was... the idea. Yeah, Maybe okay. Tony Scott remembered who he was working for in that moment. Let's make this a silly and flat-out stupid scene, but homaging a cartoon. At what point do they actually grab Bruce Willis's character and force him to do the handoff? That's obviously past the scene where Damon Wayans gets thrown off the bridge. Oh yeah, Bruce Willis got grabbed by Negron, and that's when he's beating him up in the pool house, and it's, if you touch me again, I'll fucking kill you. That's not Negron, though. That's a different actor. No, but Negron is there, is what I'm saying. There's a couple of heavies there. Mark Cohen's also there. Yeah, you get those two dopes, and of course it's, boom! Touch me again, I'll kill you. There's a lot of setup and payoff to this movie, and that scene is a setup and payoff. Head or gut is a setup and payoff. It's early in the movie, then it's at the end when he punches the senator. But in that scene, Kim Coates, who's the coach in Goon, we covered Goon a couple of years ago. I love Kim Coates. Is the one who has the nose pushed through his brain, which I always thought when I saw this movie way back when I was young, 20 or so years old, or probably less than 20 years old, was legit. Kind of scary to think you could do something like that that easily. Not true. There's no bone in your nose. It's cartilage. You would hurt somebody pretty badly by doing something like that, but you wouldn't push the nose through their brain. It's still a cool moment, but ridiculous. I think you may have just summed up the entirety of this movie by saying that was a cool moment, but ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) They've got Bruce Willis, and they decide they're going to try to frame him as the guy that paid off the senator slash blew him up at the game at the end of this movie. They take long-range photos. That's one of Mark Cohen's people taking the photos. And then they were going to kill him in the woods had Darian not come along with the sock puppet. And 
got them out of that situation. Gene Siskel always talked about how he hated that movies put kids in danger. Well, this one does it a lot in the last act of this movie, but she does save their lives. But had that not happened, then Joe and Jimmy would have been killed in the woods. Jimmy wasn't really the point, but Joe would have been killed. You'd bury him so no one ever find his body. But you see that he's the one that gave the bomb to the bodyguards to take to the senator, and he's the one that's also been prank calling the senator. And then they get what they want with the legalized gambling because the guy who's standing in the way by wanting too much money is no longer in the way. Shelley gets his way. Gambling's legalized. Ratings can go up. But yeah, the mob might not like that too much. But Bruce Willis is supposed to be killed. It's just that the kid saves their lives. And basically, Darian is the hero of this movie. Yeah, basically. I love the thought that everyone is just immediately going to accept that Joe is responsible for everything. The cops just immediately practically assume that he's guilty of everything. And so the guy's like, we'll take a few photos of him in the woods with the unnamed henchman that I guess everybody must know works for the senator. He's one of Marcone's guys. That's the idea. No, no. Marcone's guys are taking the photos because those are Taylor Negron's guys taking the photos of Bruce Willis handing a suitcase. Oh, you mean the storyline is that it's one yeah. of the senator's guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Their storyline would be that's one of the senator's guys that took the pictures. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And everybody just knows that this is one of the senator's guys accepting a briefcase in the woods, I suppose, because it's not like the senator's there, right? This kid, Darian, who you're right, I think is the biggest hero in the movie of anybody. She is the biggest hero in the movie. She shows up when Damon Wayans is tailing Negron and Marcone's guys to the woods with Bruce Willis tied up. She pulls out one of Bruce Willis's guns, and she's 13. She's not like she's four years old. Points it at Damon Wayans, like, look what I found. And my dad, I thought you might want this. Kid, hand it to him, handle first or something. Don't point the barrel in his face, which she does three times. I don't know if that was a direction or whether it was just the kid as the actor saying, hey, this is fun. Here you go, Damon Wayans. I think it was a direction. Daniel Harris, who had already played a character in the Halloween sequels that the new movies just ignore, even happened. And then at one point, spoiler alert on the Halloween sequels that are 20-whatever years old now, 25 years old, she ends up being a killer. But Daniel Harris is that character where she is just this innocent girl that eventually is corrupted by the Michael Myers influence and becomes a killer. Maybe this movie is playing off the same notion, which I think at that point, or maybe it was after this movie when she became the killer in the Halloween series, but they could have been playing off that in some ways where she's an innocent kid, but it's not going to take much. Even with Bruce Willis cleaning himself up, you notice he's finally shaven at the end of the movie too, wearing a nice shirt. We just take one day at a time. Sarah will be okay. I think Sarah's going to fuck around again. And I think Darian might grow up to be a sociopath regardless. Although, when she's told to respect her father, she calls him sir. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, (laughs) sir. But the odds are pretty good she's going to be a sociopath. And you just described why when she's pointing guns at people and wandering into this situation. She's scared through a lot of that last act of the movie. But at the same point, the fact she goes into these situations at all is nuts. She's gutsy like her father, but maybe she's also a little bit psychotic. I think so. Yeah, crazy brave. When we first meet her, she hates Bruce Willis for reasons that we're not clear on, other than the fact that everybody hates Bruce Willis. He's a bad dad. Is he? He works a lot, but apparently it's mostly Sarah badmouths him to their daughter. That's a big part of it. I thought the scene where the two of them fight, where father-daughter fight, was pretty real. It felt like the kind of scene you'd see in a... Well, Tony Scott's a good director, but in more of a small people-type movie. Mike Lee, the English director, might make a scene like that, where you feel like, man, it's like I'm eavesdropping into a real situation. PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson would be a good example of somebody who directed a scene like that. I thought Tony Scott did a good job with those actors. It felt like you were eavesdropping on something, a pretty painful domestic scene. I can't disagree with that because I liked the scene. It's one of those things about this movie that feels kind of strange because up until this point and after this point, aside from the painful monologues that I mentioned earlier, you've got an action movie. A quippy, fast, quasi-comedy action movie, but right smack in the middle of it, you've got this five-minute scene of this painful, gut-wrenching interaction with Bruce Willis and his daughter. You're like, whoa, this is a hard left kind of tonal choice. Okay, you think it's a tonal problem? I'm not even saying it's a problem. This movie has so many interesting choices, and this is one of them. It birthed one of my favorite lines from this movie, next to Taylor Negron's This Gun Is Too Many Bullets thing. Bruce Willis goes to the freezer and pulls out the ice cream and offers it to his daughter. It's your favorite, you want some? And she basically tells him to go fuck off. And so he opens the window and chucks it out and goes... You know how I hate wasting food. I love that so much because it is such a dad thing to say. It's perfect. She hitches around with Damon Wayans, wanders into the middle of this forced handoff in the woods. Taylor Negron basically says, get her out of here. But nobody moves. Wanders right up to Bruce Willis, hands him something. Nobody grabs her. Nobody pulls her out of there. No, no. Taylor Negron does say the kid stays. And the only reason he does is because the script said the kid stays. 
because they needed the guys to think it's funny, just like the guy earlier in the alley that had Bruce Willis dead to rights. But Joe starts wisecracking about how fat his wife is and everything. The big black guy starts laughing at that, gets distracted, and then Joe gets the drop on him. The same thing happens in the woods. If these guys weren't being lax about this and just put a fucking bullet in his head or their heads, because it's also Jimmy, they don't know the kids involved with them. It's just some kid at that point to them. Then the job would be done. And you just hit exactly what I was going to say, is that the other weird tonal decision that this movie's made twice was that at various points, Bruce Willis's character does like a tight 90-second stand-up routine to get himself <laughs> out of trouble. I'm like, what the hell is this? Was this Bruce Willis saying, guys, I'm trying to launch a bit of a stand-up side career? Because he's got this freaking weird hand puppet on his hand, and he's doing gags to six mafioso types, and they're going, <laughs> the whole time. You're in the middle of like a real complicated scheme here. Taylor Negron's like, that's pretty good. I could see you at Night of the Improv, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, of course they survive. Car chase ensues. Multiple car chases. This was the best one. The one that ends up with Taylor Negron's car flying into the pool. He jumps out before it goes in the pool, but the other guy does end up in the pool, yes. So the car flies into the pool, submerged in the pool, and then explodes. <laughs> like, sure. Damon Way, I think it's Damon Wayne's character, says... But what if they survived? And Bruce Willis walks around the side of the car, starts firing bullets at it, and goes, well, now they have him. Then he goes and he opens the trunk and he gets the money. The bomb had already gone to the stadium, I guess. Yeah. And then he leaves his daughter in the care of the stranger who he has just driven a car into their backyard with a gun in hand, taken the stranger's car to drive to the stadium, call 911 and here's my 13-year-old daughter, and then he drives away. Now I get that Bruce Willis is a bad parent, because I don't care what your situation is. You don't do that. But do you not check? He walked around the side of the car and shot bullets at something. Do you not check to see if bad guy numero uno, Taylor Negron, is the guy that's in the back of the car that you're shooting at? You're just firing bullets randomly at the car. Yeah, I'm sure that did the job. I'm going to leave now. Oh, but I'm going to leave my daughter here. But I'm sure everything's fine. And of course, Taylor Negron's alive. And he kills the guy, takes the daughter. Well, I could have seen that one coming. Maybe Joe's an idiot. Not long after, Marcone becomes a Bond villain. Marcone's explaining his whole plan. Well, you're going to die anyway, so I'll tell you my whole plan about what's going to happen with the senator and all this other stuff. Only the shredders. So Darian's the hero of this movie, the real hero, the human hero. But those shredders, those little bomb things that Jimmy throws into the fire, are the other hero of this movie, because otherwise they'd be dead all over again. They're dead to rights so often, but they never get killed. I think you're right. Maybe Joe's just an idiot. Maybe that's the problem. He might be. They track down the car with the bomb that's driving to the stadium in L.A., the Coliseum, I guess they say. And Damon Wayans holds up a piece of paper to the window. The guy that's in the car is the senator's henchman, the guy that's got what he thinks is the $6 million in a briefcase, which is really the bomb. So Damon Wayans holds up the picture of a bomb that looks like an apple and the thing that says B.O.M. And the guy's response to that is not to flip him off or try to drive away. It's to start firing at him in the middle of the highway. Not a proportional response to somebody holding up something. Wait, two things, though. First, it's a black guy. Second, it's L.A. That's fitting. Okay, that's fair. But were we meant to believe that that henchman was Polish or something, and we were supposed to know that? Yes. Bruce Willis says to Damon Wayans, oh, I forgot to tell you, bomb in Polish is fuck you or something. You could argue they found that out when they're all standing around in the woods (laughs) at a moment. They're talking about each other's heritage? What do you like to do? Oh, I like to eat Polish food. Oh, you Polish? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I really like ponchkis, you know, good donuts, very fresh. <laughs> okay. A car crashes, which belongs to Marcone, I guess? This is on the side of the freeway, right? The car phone rings, and it's Taylor Negron calling the car phone. Bruce Willis is standing outside of a burning flipped car that isn't his car, but a phone rings, and he decides to answer it, which is always a movie move I love. It's not my car, and it's randomly ringing. I'll just answer that phone. Why not? And, of course, it's Taylor Negron that knew to call that car because Bruce Willis would be standing next to it, I guess. At that point, you know you have access to a working car phone. Call 911! Or just issue a bomb threat for the L.A. Coliseum and say, I've got a bomb, I plant in the stadium, I'm not going to tell you where it is. Clear the stadium out, exactly, yeah. But I guess the movie has to happen, so, of course, he's not going to do that. Well, also, through the whole end of the movie where Jimmy and Joe... They should be taken care of by the medics because they've got injuries, especially the shot in the hand for Jimmy. But they should be in major trouble with the cops because the cops don't know the truth yet. They can't just immediately deduce what we know. But they're just right away, it seems to be treated as, oh, well, this is like Die Hard. Well, then again, even at Die Hard, you could argue, how do the cops know? I guess they do because Al, 
the Reginald Bell Johnson character knows the truth. But then again, we know more than the cops do even in that movie. But in this one especially, they don't know Jimmy and Joe are good guys. So why are they so nice to them at the end? They should be suspicious. They thought that Joe was a killer minutes before. The only one that thought that there might be a glimmer of goodness still in Joe was the guy that got murdered earlier in the movie. The other cop that we get to know is the chief or captain. Who doesn't like him. That hates him. And yeah, like you said, was convinced that Joe was the one that murdered his best friend for sleeping with his wife. Why are they allowed to walk free? As far as the cops are concerned, they've still murdered many people. And by my count, at this point, Bruce Willis had murdered at least nine people, some of whom for very questionable reasons, not necessarily self-defense. So at the very least, he should be in custody. They're sitting outside the Coliseum. Of course, Bruce Willis is in the blanket. Sarah, his wife, walks up and is like, I'm sorry. It's all my fault. Let's make it work. I do love this part, though. I'll get a dog. (laughs) That's always a good piece of advice. (laughs) And the callback, if these cops weren't here, I'd spit in your face. Okay, you thought he was a dirtbag for working too much and being away from home and being not a good father and all that. The fact that he just murdered a bunch of mafioso types and saved a senator changes none of the last ten years. You've still been sleeping around. He's still a dirtbag. She's going to cheat again. That's what I said before. That's what it comes down to. She wants to just smooth the feathers out and make it okay because maybe he's great in bed when he is good. Maybe she realizes for a while he's going to shave and put on a nice blue colored shirt and be good for a while. We can have some good sex. But then I'll find somebody else to fuck in three months. It's so wild. I love the fact that they managed to park their car directly next to the senator's car in the parking lot just by happenstance. Oh, here's the briefcase with the money in it. Smash the window, grab the briefcase, turn around. Oh, hang on. No, that's not what he does. He shoots the window twice to get that briefcase out of there, and the people in the background of the shot don't react at all to a gun going off after a football game. Where things had happened during that game, granted, because I think the timeline is that he that right around the time that they were shooting guns in the stadium, granted, but A, those people wouldn't know that because they were outside, and B, even if that had happened inside, it shouldn't be happening 25 or 100 feet away from you and not even react to it at all. Well, like you said earlier, it was L.A. in the early 90s, and I don't no, think the Coliseum is in a good part of the town. Handgun fire outside the stadium, I'll forgive. What blew my mind is within the stadium itself, and I still don't understand how Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans were A, able to get into the Coliseum, because they didn't have tickets for the game or anything. B, these are the worst security personnel in the history of professional sports. They do recognize him. They recognize Jimmy. That's why I think. He says, I'm just going up to see the boss. Okay, Mr. Dix. That was after they were in the stadium, when they were going into the players' area. And even then, Jimmy Dix doesn't play for the team. He's been banned by the league. But the guy recognizes him. I think he could argue that. It's spurious, but he does recognize him. The huge culmination of it all is this automatic rifle firefight in the middle of the stadium. You've got the SWAT helicopter coming in. I also like the fact that there's an active shooter in this situation. Right, Taylor Negron's got the automatic M16 or AK-47 or whatever, and he's firing down... And the police helicopter just flies directly in front of the active shooter. You're under arrest. Please stop. What does he do? Well, he shoots them. But then he gets killed by the rotor blades. He gets tossed off of that light standard by Bruce Willis. And then another disgusting moment in this movie. Why is the helicopter below Taylor Negron in the shot? Just so he could die that way. That's (laughs) Just so he could die. The helicopter is meant to be aerial support from above. Why is it in the stadium? But throughout all of this, and this is like a good five to ten minute sequence of firefights, explosions, and all that kind of stuff. Apparently nobody has left their seats. Nobody has fled the stadium. All the players are still on the field. When Bruce Willis starts, for some reason, dancing. Dancing a jig. Dancing a jig. Everyone's like, oh, that's pretty cool. You go, Bruce Willis. Guys, run away. There's a firefight <laughs> happening in the little Coliseum. Get out of your seats. Everyone's just hoping the game will resume or something. Like this is a halftime show. It was the weirdest thing. Much in the same vein as Bruce Willis riding out onto the field. No, no, Damon Wayans, sorry. Riding out on the field on a horse. No stoppage in play. Give me the fucking ball! (laughs) (laughs) They continue with the play until he grabs the ball and heaves it at the center. With the shot hand. With the shot hand. Don't forget. Now, he did grimace afterwards, Ryan, so it's okay. He's filled with adrenaline. He needs to do this. Okay, okay. Uh, Anyway. It so encapsulates 1991, from the gratuitous violence to the Mm. weird and bad comedy to the quips that now, 30 years later, strike me as kind of awesome. I think they were awesome then. Some of them might have been awesome then for different reasons, but I think a lot of them are straight up awesome now. Some of the lines, though, I know you're going to say it, and then they go hard left. Like, at one point, Bruce Willis says to Damon Wayans, You don't give up, do you? You're like a dog with a frisbee. Dog with a frisbee? The line is dog with a bone. Why didn't you say dog with a bone? I don't understand. 
And there's a lot of lines like that where they just take like a little hard left on you and they go a different direction. Well, what about the depiction of the sport? Because we're supposed to be talking about sports movies on this channel. <laughs> there is some, but there's less than I thought before I started watching it again this time. There's the L.A. Cleveland game at the beginning. I already said I like Jimmy's speech about what happened to him and why he went down the road he did. And we see a little of the game at the end. It also should be acknowledged that football players rarely, I say rarely, pull out guns and shoot their opponents. Sometimes, when it's absolutely necessary, when a guy makes a face at you on a baseball field, you probably should shoot him. When he makes the face that Joe Kelly did with the Dodgers a few weeks ago, you probably should just shoot him. Anyway, getting back to the point of Last Boy Scout. So what do you think of the depiction of the sport? What little we see? Well, like you said, unfortunately, Billy Blanks did not pull out a regulation firearm, a regulation weapon in that sequence. So that was a little... didn't score a touchdown either. So that was a little inaccurate. I would have preferred if he had pulled out one of the league-approved weapons for that purpose and then scored. Bring the proper gun to the proper gunfight. Yeah, exactly. I would have appreciated a tighter spiral on Damon Wayans' throw. For the best arm in the National League. Mm -hmm. Right, when he's saving the woman from sexual assault in the hot tub. But the throw he made to save the senator at the end of the game across the stadium was very good. That was a nice tight spiral, so I appreciated that. All in all, depiction of the sport, can't fault it. Nearly perfect. (laughs) Well, we did jam this one to this slot, just like we did earlier this year with Point Break and Fast and the Furious. Last question I want to ask you, just because it's like an overarching plot point, is the gambling thing. Because this I could not, for the life of me, figure out. What is the benefit to legalize gambling in California? You're next door to Nevada. You can easily place bets at any number of bookies in Vegas. I think they would try to promote it through the television show that you, the fan, can bet on L.A. or Cleveland or Miami or whatever the various teams are. New York obviously would have a team in this non-NFL league. So that's probably what it is. You can legally bet on this, which means that a lot of people, and they probably would if it was true, bet. So they had more reason to watch. Just like you would have to if you're now Marcone's dead because he blew himself up. That was a nice payoff as well. But Marcone, if he wasn't dead, could promote, look what happens at our games. It's insane. You have to see the next one. Maybe there'll be a horse in the field that interrupts the sport (laughs) and some dude will get destroyed by a helicopter just chopped right up and some other guy will be dancing in the light standard. You can't miss another one of our games. So you're thinking it's more like a legal enterprise and a way to drum up attendance at the NFL analog that's depicted in this movie. They do say it at a couple points in interviews in this movie and stuff that attendance or viewership is down, which I found kind of laughable in 1991, knowing how much money the NFL has made over the last 30 years, but maybe it was a thing. Because of that Billy Blank sequence at the beginning of the movie where he was clearly match-fixing or messing with the spread or the over-under or something, at the insistence of Taylor Negron's character that somehow the mob had plans to fix a bunch of games and they wanted it legalized in California for some reason to do that. And that's why I couldn't wrap my head around it. If that's what you're planning to do, just do it in Vegas. I'm pretty sure that's what a ton of organized crime does in Vegas already. But okay, what you say makes a little bit more sense. This movie also makes a politician and especially a sports owner out to be bigger villains than mobsters. Which may not be inaccurate, Ryan. (laughs) What we've learned about big business in America over the last couple of years, there may not be bigger criminals in the world than corporate leaders and or politicians. So, And interestingly, Bev and I just covered Godfather Part 3 on the Top 100 Project, so that's a nice fitting comparison with actual mobsters to these pseudo-mobsters. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. (laughs) They shoot me in the hand. I already said I think you could score with this movie. I assume you agree. My score, I'd give it a 7.5 out of 10 for the entertainment factor. Very quotable dialogue. The interesting politics of the sport. Politics may be the wrong word for it, but the gambling thing, legalized gambling, all that. And I did like Jimmy's backstory. Bruce Willis is in Bruce Willis form in this film. Smirky, smarmy, also cool, badass. You're right. He may not be likable, but we still like him. That's one reason why he became a star in Die Hard. This was Bruce Willis at his peak, despite Hudson Hawk earlier that year. I'd give it more like maybe a six, six and a half. Because I had a ton of fun watching it. But it's pretty dumb, so. It's super dumb. But back in like the mid-90s when I was 13, 14, 15, watching this on cable TV, even in its watered-down state, it was almost tailor-made in the 90s for a teenage pubescent boy because it's got gratuitous violence, lots of swearing, some sports, really brief partial nudity. So if you had asked me if I'd like this movie 25 years ago, I would have been like, best movie ever. Now, there's some aspects of it I'm not really down with as much as you are, but still, a ton of fun to watch. I'm being very forgiving to give it the score I did, but I was entertained by it, and I can't deny that. Well, in two weeks, we'll cover a sport we've never covered before as we hit the pitch to soccer it up. First ever soccer movie 
Bend It Like Beckham, which I've only ever seen once in the theater in 2003, I think I was. Big change of pace from Last Boy Scout as well. <laughs> I really hope there's as much violence and as much swearing. I've never seen Bend It Like Beckham, so I don't know. And I'm hoping there's as much of these things in Bend It Like Beckham as there has been in The Last Boy Scout. They only shoot one innocent cop, not several. Oh, well, okay. As long as there's at least one, though. May, uh, you know, maybe they shoot five or six in that movie. I think that might be five or six, yeah. Okay. We're on Twitter. He is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. Of course, the podcast is on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and for a few more weeks, it's on Top and Under Project, but it won't be forever. Go to Scoring at the Movies. Start subscribing there. We're also on TuneIn for Scoring at the Movies, and the other ones Chris said to you before. Be prepared, dudes. I know that you fucking Boy Scouts will. <laughs>